Smart Council is a joint production of Multnomah University, Alternative Behavioral Therapy, and New Pattern Counseling. Joshua Moore is a counselor at Alternative Behavioral Therapy in Vancouver, Washington, who specializes in neurofeedback and trauma. Reese Pasimio is a counselor at New Pattern Counseling in Gresham, Oregon, who specializes in addictions, sexuality, gender, and spirituality. Thanks for listening and for joining the conversation. Welcome to Smart Council, spiritual integration from a cognitive psychology perspective. Smart Council offers... Smart Council offers perspectives and resources to providers and students on spirituality, mental health, addictions, relationships, and trauma. I'm Reese Basimio. And I'm Joshua Moore. And we're here to talk about spiritual integration and cognitive psychology. Super, super smart stuff. Um, first, though, just checking in because we're, we're human. Uh, Josh, how you been? What you reading? What I'm, you learning? I'm good. I've been recovering from a surgery. I had uh, my nose broken in a few places and... My nasal passage is reconstructed so I can breathe. Breathing has been really nice, um, but the pain has been less nice. But in general, I'm glad. <laughs> a lot of sleeping. <laughs> I'm glad you're well. And reconstructed noses are great. Mm-hmm. It looks uh, the same, but right. <laughs> I can breathe. <laughs> um, lately, have you been reading anything particularly interesting? Only audiobooks. And there's been a whole different hodgepodge of different audiobooks. A little bit of the old classics like Codependency No More and The Body Keeps the Score and A Symphony of the Brain and um, a few others uh, that are maybe more story driven, but just a little bit of everything. I've been bouncing around. I think my attention's a little bit, di- you know, a little off, <laughs> but a little bit, a little bit of everything. It sounds like a good smattering and yeah. Always just really interesting. (laughs) I uh, picked up, well, so in, I'm doing, I had to take a break from some of my other reading and start prepping for uh, module three for the uh, certified sex addiction. Is that the final module? That's the, this three of four. Okay. So I get to go to Atlanta next month and go check that out. That's a huge Um, accomplishment. Such uh, a huge program. Well, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I feel pretty good about it too. Uh, but anyway, so so for that one, we're supposed to read uh, a couple of books by Patrick Harns. Mm-hmm. One is an older one. It's called Don't Call It Love. And it's exploring what are some of the technicalities, definitions around what, what addiction is. And there's, um, it's it's old. And so, mm-hmm. it's, so it has some older language and some older terminology that wouldn't quite fly today, but uh, conceptually. So it's talking about uh, what addiction is, some of the criteria yeah. for it. Uh, with some specific emphasis on on sexual addiction, but a lot of the concepts also translate to a lot of other addictive and compulsive behaviors that may or may yeah, not involve. Yeah, the definition of addiction's not that obvious when you think about it. It's not, and it's 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 kind of a clunky, clumsy term. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, exploring it a little bit, bit more, uh, the difference between an addiction and a compulsion right. is really blurry. And actually, you know, the the differences between. Uh, an addictive disorder and say like obsessive compulsive disorder. Right. They're, it's not, they're not complete. There's a lot of overlap there as well. Mm. So hadn't even considered that. Yeah. Yikes. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's I'm, I'm compulsively doing this thing that I don't really like, like to do mm-hmm. that kind of relieves stress in the moment, but not in the long term, and right. have consequences because of it. Um, it could be talking. It makes about me wonder it. if there's any neuroanatomy crossover between certain kinds of addiction and OCD. You know, the left interior cingulate gyrus is like really responsible for OCD. And I like, I wonder, I should go home and Google that and, and see if addictions pops up too. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I, I bet it would. Um, I also um, I also started reading, it's it's more of a textbook. It's the recovery zone, mm-hmm. the the internal tasks, making changes at last. And it's 
Um, it's the textbook that follows the Facing the Shadows curriculum. And, and I'm actually, I'm both reading it for the module and I'm using it in, in, a, in a men's support group that I'm doing. Wow. Um, and this one I really like because it's written for people who have already established some initial sobriety and basically saying now that you've started to successfully do behavior change, mm-hmm. now let's look inside. Let's look at the underlying issues. Let's look at the cross addictions, the covert addictions, the family relationships, the grievances, right. the trauma, everything, uh, a lot while all at the same time talking about attachment and trauma and underlying issues. So I'm actually thinking of using it as a textbook. When yeah. I teach, that's when awesome. I teach sometime because, because of all, all of the things that it explains really well. Right. Doesn't sound like it would be a boring textbook if you like. It's it not much. at all boring, and he makes you know copious and conspicuous you know references to you know Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. And things, so that's just always fun. <laughs> the few times that we've done this in class, the students go wild. They right. love it. Yeah, <laughs> oh, stories. I love that. Someday yeah. I'll be a writer. <laughs> we might use one of those today in the podcast. I actually have one that applies. Ooh, I'm very excited to hear that. <laughs> Speaking of our podcast yes. today, so. We're talking spiritual integrations from a cognitive psychology model. And um, so this is this is very much your wheelhouse. So I'll mm-hmm. uh, invite you to kick this off with a quick request to kind of explain what cognitive psychology is. Yeah. For people not, that are not, not so there's, quite there's, smart There's like a different lenses to approach psychology, you know, and abnormal psychology and developmental psychology and general psychology. But anyways, uh, cognitive psychology is approaching the brain from a cognitive perspective. So we're, we're looking at the brain and the function of the brain and, and how, what mechanisms uh, exist and how we understand those mechanisms and how we break those down into pieces. And, and, and basically, what are, the, what are the ingredients for something simple like attention? You know, What are the ingredients for, say, perception? So looking mm-hmm. at the specific uh, hardware. It's more brain-oriented, brain. yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's more brain. It's hardware-oriented perspective uh, from you know for psychology. Oh, okay. So, so today we're going to talk about it in a very non like if, if you're if you're if you're if you're not religious but you are a spiritual person, you're not going to find this um, offensive or you're you're, you're going to you probably are still going to enjoy this podcast. <laughs> does that make sense? We'll make it enjoyable. Yeah, That's spiritual nice. perspective. It does. It doesn't have to be uh, exclusionary. Okay. <laughs> So, um, first of all, we can, you know, we got to start by defining our terms. You know, I would say that we've already defined cognition. You know, you've got de- definitions like perception. Perception is a lot of the different sensations that make up your experience. So, all the sensations that you experience make up your perception. Your perception is a cognition in your brain. So, the question is, what is spirituality? I don't know if you have any thoughts. <laughs> I'm, I think I'm still catching up with, with, with perception. Yeah. And, so, we have sensations as a yes. baseline. Those sensations... Uh, together make up our perception and mm. our perception is part of our cognition. Right. We have a lot of cognitions. Perception's right. one of them. Yes. Perceptions. Mm-hmm. And and I'm thinking about the the lecture that, that you talked about uh-huh. where you're talking about how um you'd use the example of a chair. And you yes. know, maybe a, a yellow chair. Yes. And how we don't actually see the chair. Yeah. <laughs> we we see the mental representation in our minds of the chair. Right, right. So, see yellow, we see yeah. Something that our brain is interpreting as yellow. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not like, it's, and we're not that objective as humans, really. I mean, we, we are sensation driven and uh, perception driven and that sensation and those perceptions take place in our brain. They don't take my, my, my perception of the chair doesn't take place over there. Uh, the chair is over there, but my, my experience of the chair takes place in my brain. I found this really interesting uh, when I was reading the developing mind and mm-hmm. he talks about the, like the representations of people. And at one point uh, Siegel was talking about how, 
well, my, my summarized takeaway from it is that uh, I never actually interact with people. Mm-hmm. I interact with the internal representation of yeah. each of those people I have in my mind. <laughs> yes. And the, the dicey bit is how that internal representation is much more stronger, more credible in, to me from my perspective than the right. actual person. Yeah. And it's not that objective. It's very I mean, Until you take a cognitive psychology course, you realize we're not that objective as humans. Not we, at all. We pretty much only see what we're looking for, and which is less than 2% of the information out there, by the way. Um, with that chair, even, even as it exists, you're like, come on guys, aren't you just, you know, being overly philosophical? It's like, well, I'll, I'll raise the ante here a little bit. Uh, I like to go the astrophysicists, you know, method here. Like the space between atoms is actually a lot wider than you might have been led to believe. Uh-huh. Just to give you some context, like if I asked you to find what a ghost is and you gave me a criteria, we might find that you meet that criteria because the reality is that the chair over there that I'm looking at, but I'm experiencing in my mind is 99.9999999996% empty space. Uh-huh that, you know, the space in the molecules or in the atoms, I'm sorry, uh, in between the protons is, is a vast emptiness. It's, 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 it's uh, all held together by electrical forces. And, and that's the reality. That's the actual reality. Right. So, <laughs> so then the, the meme, the meme, the meme that says, because mm-hmm. we're mostly water, we're mostly, we're essentially cucumbers with anxiety. You're mostly nothing. actually not true. <laughs> you're we're mostly actually nothing. nothing with anxiety. <laughs> so wisps with anxiety. Yeah. You're mostly, you're mostly nothing. And, and evidence of that being that like our star produces neutrons and mm-hmm. those neutrons, if they collide with your atoms, they cause massive radiation. You, they don't hit you. They go straight through you because you're mostly nothing. And so we don't actually have a high risk of being hit by neutrons because you are mostly nothing. Well, that's fortunate. Uh, <laughs> but they do just pass through yeah. you. They just do. That's- I can also see how, so, so we've been talking mm-hmm. about the example of a chair and, you know, and it could be, oh, guys, you're being su- mm-hmm. super philosophical. But then, yeah, raising the ante, let's say, say we're not talking about how we're perceiving a chair. We're talking about how we're perceiving a person. Yeah. And just even on a very basic level, like I'm perceiving a man versus perceiving a woman. And there's many right. more differences that we can talk about that yeah. are all very loaded and hot topics. Right. Um, but you know, um, that's where, where, where I imagine my, my biases will come in and my instinctive yeah. things. Right. And, right. Um, and if I'm all the categories that, that you've built throughout your childhood yeah. development. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All the, all those perceptions based on all of those experiences, mm-hmm. my, I'm going to, I'm going to act according to my instincts and those instincts have been created and formed through all of the experiences I've had mm-hmm. over the course of my life. And, um, only at great pains and a great labor, do I become aware of those? And it's very essential that I become aware of those because yeah. to act, uh, to act in unmindfulness of your instincts, um, leads to some very problematic ways right. of treating people. So, so where do you experience your sense of spirituality? Well, so that's interesting now that I'm, <laughs> so now I'm hearing that from you the got to think about it for a second. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, cause, cause my, my instinct right now is, and this is a little bit, I'm going to answer okay. maybe a psychological question more from a theological perspective, but like, um, some of some of my traditions, you know, Eastern Orthodox tradition mm-hmm. and like we yeah. have this very concrete perception of what the church is. It's like a concrete place and like you enter it through concrete means. And so, mm-hmm. so there's one sense where my spiritual sense of spirituality is housed in this one building in Milwaukee, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to a more, you know, but, you, but where do you experience that? I experience it there. No, <laughs> no, no. You, okay, I, I think I think I know. I think I know where you're going. Um, but like, I, um, I had a student once tell me, like, I, I feel it down here in my chest, and I was like, okay, but where do you experience that feeling in your chest? Yeah. They're like my brain. Yeah. There, there is that. Um, and I'm, I think I'm going to push on this a little sure, bit because, yeah, please. because I know please I know do. where you're going is that you know all of our experiences are filtered mm-hmm. through the brain, but. But yeah. then, like, I, I want to camp on like the, yeah, the brain body connection, and mm-hmm. uh, and again, thinking in certain religious traditions, spiritual traditions, 
like the 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 importance they place on on whole body ritual mm-hmm. like you and i'm thinking um you know my lens again you know orthodox lens you mm-hmm. know an orthodox liturgy is specifically designed to engage all five senses and right. all of the body in both sides of the brain so it so actually you have, is, a, you have a body awareness yeah and and we ex- in our head we experience it um and we perceive it out in the world that perception is taking place in our brain, but it's, but it's externalized. And there actually is a map in your head for your body. It's, it's the reason why when you, you know, when I used to work at the frontline medical reception, I was the, I did the life flight triage, uh, and, and, and the medical interventions, the, the acute medical interventions when they flew back from the United, uh, from Afghanistan, to Iraq, I did that work. Um, and you know, with amputation victims, which is extremely common in that industry, um, every single one of them had phantom limb syndrome. There was this debate of whether it existed or not until one big study came out that says everybody who's ever had an amputation has experienced phantom limb syndrome. That's one hundred percent. The study was conclusive. It was def- it was it was absolutely clean because of the mind map of your body that your brain. It's has. in your brain, yeah. So something like so, I don't believe the two are exclusive. Meaning that like you're supposed to tend to this holistic sense of self, all of that holistic sense of self, including the idea of um, being mindful of our body and present with our body is something that takes place in our brain and our brain actually has specific mechanisms for that map. So we're engaging with that map when we mm-hmm. engage with it. Yeah. Does that make sense? <laughs> that does. And I, and I know the point you're, mm-hmm. you're making is yeah. that um, every, every experience we, that mm-hmm. we, we think we're having an experience in our body or an emotional right, right. experience, or I think, Oh, this person, but it's actually, it's, it's all in the brain. The brain. Well, well, and we have to define the brain really well. How do you define the brain? The gray matter in my skull. What is gray matter? Neurons? Um, the neurons. Yeah. Okay, so your gut has neurons a lot. Oh, your heart has a special neurological tissue that creates its own central nervous system. Your heart has neurons, and they even found out about two years ago that your skin has a loose interconnective neuron system. I mean, you are a brain. Well, so so are you thinking? Is there a difference between brain cells and just nerve cells? Those aren't nerve cells. Those are neurons. Those are, neurons. Neurons. those are neurons. Oh, <laughs> not, okay. They're not nerves. Those are neurons. Okay. I'm talking about neurons in your skin, neurons in your heart, neurons in your gut. Okay. I mean, I don't know. Like, we, what, how do you define your brain? It's like, well, it's that part that we, I mean, I don't know. Like, you know, you see, <laughs> it's not that easy, right? Obviously, we think of it as, as, as the part upstairs, right? But, but in, in general, if we're saying, well, it's the neurons, it's like, okay, well, you have those everywhere. We didn't know that before, but we do know that now. Oh, we're smarter okay. now. So it's like, well, so, you, you, yeah. So there's a lot of brain in your skull, mm-hmm. but there's a lot more of your brain reaching into yeah. every other part of lots, your body. Lots of different, and there's lots of different types. So you can't just say, well, it's a certain cell morphology because there's all kinds of cell morphologies in the brain that are different that we don't understand. So it's like, you know, it's not, it's not a simple answer. You know, you can compartmentalize it. It doesn't mean that, that you've categorically made it make sense yet. Okay. So, <laughs> but, but think about that for a second though. Um, so you, you, you've got a lot of different things going on in your body and we are very aware and there's an internal map you know, partially because of the neurons in your skin, but it's also something that takes place very, very, very much in your brain. Because if if someone loses a leg, um, that doesn't automatically cue the entire self into knowing that it's gone, that there's unconscious parts of your brain that don't get the memo for a very, very, very long time, if ever. So complicated. That is very um, complicated. But, but where do we experience our spirituality? Like where, where in our bodies? Yeah, like like those mm. sensations, I'm, you know, I'm kind of being coy, but we, we experience them in our head. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say some people are going to buck against that, but, but that's all we have. All we have, you know, is the sensations that we've experienced mm-hmm. our perception and experiences in our head are all we've ever had. Um, I could, I could see that. And, and I would, I would go as far as to say that, um, when we look at 
say Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, the body keeps the score. We become pretty persuaded that the spiritual and uh, sorry, that the, the physical and the emotional are, are very, very, very sympathetically connected that you can't hurt the body without hurting the mind and you can't hurt the mind without hurting the body. Does that make sense? That absolutely makes sense. So where does the spirit, is it just a floating entity that doesn't connect to the two? <laughs> well, here's where, here's where I'm also, I, I mean, again, so, so I definitely have my lenses. And so I guess, depending on how we're defining spirituality and spirit, um, and definitely it's something that transcends, you know, specific religious traditions, but, right. um, well, when I, when I talk about what spirituality is with, with people, mm-hmm. especially, you know, non-religious people, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'll talk about it not specifically in terms of, you know, here, here's your sense of God, although, you know, many people you know believe that, but, you know, your sense of the, 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 the bigger than you, the ultimate, um, mm-hmm. the, the super interpersonal, like, the, um, you know, the mystical even, mm-hmm. and, uh, or, you know, on another level, we could say, you know, the, your, your sense of the immaterial. And I know, you know, right there, there's, there's good, there's, you know, going to be, you know, debate over, you know, whether the material immaterial exists and, you know, many very smart people believe it, it doesn't. Um, I think it does. So there's a, you're working it. I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> you're, it. you're, you're, you're hearing live, live processing and paradigm is, shifting in, in Reese's brain. That's okay. Um, which is, which is really fun. <laughs> I'm thinking as you're talking about this, talking mm-hmm. about where where do we perceive spirituality? Uh, again, surprise! There's another Orthodox concept that I'm thinking about, um, <laughs> which actually I think starts. It's, it's a Greek word, but but we we talk a lot about the noose, and it's mm. a term that we talk all about a lot. And it's again something I'm learning about. So if there's any Orthodox people listening out there, feel free to comment <laughs> and like you know clarify what I'm trying to say. We're here. okay with being wrong here. Yeah, we very much are, but. Um, we'll talk about uh, this this part of yourself be it that's that's neither completely your body nor completely your emotions mm-hmm. nor completely your mind though it's like components of all of those and mm-hmm. we say altogether it's the part of yourself that's able to perceive the spiritual. We so wouldn't you, we wouldn't say that um, in Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, that the mind is the body, right? We wouldn't say that. We would completely. just say that they're very very sympathetically attached and they're very integrated. Yeah. Does that make sense? That would, that would make sense. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, referencing, mm-hmm. you know, Siegel again, he'll talk about like the, the, the mind brain relationship triad yeah. where the three of those, it's very, very difficult to, to completely separate those from each other or mm-hmm. ignore how they impact each other. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, and there's somewhere in the middle of all those is where we could say that the spirit lives or right. the spiritual part of yourself. And it's that part of yourself that may or may not be, fairly vibrant and fairly perceptive and you can nurture it and cultivate it in different ways mm-hmm. if you believe it's it's there and and it's it's that part of yourself that's then able to to perceive the the spiritual which right. in orthodoxy right. we call it Is, the noose could we could we, uh, guess or hypothesize and or discuss the uh interactions between the spirit your your emotions or neurology and your body meaning that like my maybe the most extreme example is that if i lose my arm I'm going to have a physiological problem. Surprise, I'm going to have an emotional problem. And I'm probably also going to have an existential problem. I'm going to have a spiritual crisis. Would, you, would everybody agree? I would assume, right? I, <laughs> I would probably have the same spiritual crisis. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so meaning that there, there is obviously a sympathetic reaction um, by the mind and by the spirit uh, for losing an arm. Mm-hmm. Um, if we have a spiritual problem, does it cause neurological problems? 
At this point, I would venture to say it would. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, I, I think I was looking at, you know, various different types of effects. I mean, you can you can make all kinds of different arguments all day about, well, that's not spiritual, this is a spiritual, but it's it's difficult. I think I, I looked at, uh, you know, I have a brain scan of of, of the, that, that's been released to me, you know, uh, through the Amen Clinic, and it's got someone who's a severe pornography user. <laughs> you know, it was like, just worse than a drug addict. And was like, oh, geez. And part of it is, you know, that's a hard one to explain. You know, you can say that it's all neurological and, and maybe that's what some of the things are that we engage in spiritual practices and some of the things that we're careful about and some of the things that we, we hold as sacred. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does blur the lines a little bit when some of our spiritual practices keep us neurologically healthy. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and that, you know, I, I won't, I'm willing to make a defense of that, but I'm not going to do that at this time. Does that make sense? <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. But um, I think, uh, I think what I hear you saying, mm-hmm. and then I think if I'm hearing right, I think I agree that, yeah. um, all the parts of you affect all of the other parts of you. Right. So, you know, another example, so we can chart about, it from, from actual instruments. Yeah. Yeah. Another, another, you know, direction, you know, I'll often talk about, you know, somebody's, you know, having a lot of anxiety or they're really sad and then just like, you know, like not connecting well with people. And sometimes they'll be like, well, I mean, like, you know, you know, what, what have you eaten today? And if yeah. the response is like, you know, two Snickers and a latte, I'm like, well, you know, that might, that might have a little bit to do with it. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's a super extreme example and actually sort but, of, but, you lifted. know, if someone's having like a very deep existential crisis and, and deep down inside they, they've had a Snickers bar and two lattes, uh-huh. um, is, would you say that's not a genuine spiritual crisis? But, but in a way, well, I mean, if all things, yeah. are, if, if all things are, if all things are connected, right. then in one degree it is. Yeah. And, um, and I guess why not? If, if we say, and if we say that, um, you know, your, your body and spirit are connected. And so mm. your, your spirit gives a particular value to your body, your body yeah. gives a particular strength to your spirit. And so, yeah, I'm going to say if you're, you know, if you're not caring for your body, you know, you're yeah. eating, bad stuff and you're not exercising, you're not sleeping and, you know, poorly hydrated and, you know, putting chemicals in your body, you know, your body is not your friend and mm-hmm. it's going to only contribute to dissoci- dis- dissociation right? and disconnect and schism within yourself, mm-hmm. um, you know, which might then either be affecting or be as a result of, you know, having, you know, schisms with other people and conflicts and, um, and I would venture to say almost anyone out there listening can remember a time when they've been in conflict with someone and mm-hmm. had gut reactions, physical reactions. You know, they can't sleep, they can't eat. Um, you know, their soul is restless. Their soul is restless. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I would venture to say there, as I'm pondering some of the some of the clients that I've worked with who specifically were working with depression, and mm-hmm. for them. It wasn't specifically a depression related to chemical imbalance, right. usually, nor was it um, because of like poor health right. completely. Um, sometimes there is a connection to specific events in their lives, past traumas, but, uh, but there's often this sense of just like, I have this strong connection to all that is unwell in the world. Mm-hmm. And very much that, that existential st- stress of, I don't know, I don't understand life. Like I don't see what the purpose or the meaning is. And looking at all the brokenness in the world, I'm really discouraged by that. And, um, and in a sense it, it can, that's getting into the realm of where, you know, you can exercise all you want, have all the friends you want, you know, be as physically healthy, do all the mindfulness you want. And you still have this perception of something bigger than yourself, even bigger than the world. And, 
Um, and at that level, I would say that's getting into, you know, we'll call it the spiritual realm or the realm of, you know, spiritual solutions. Again, not mm -hmm. necessarily, you know, go to church, but like, you know, those are going to be the, the not specifically logical, not specifically mm -hmm. rational answers that you're going to look for. Um, you know, maybe even, you know, getting into like, you know, the, you know, mystical realms are a little bit. Hmm. So it's a part of accepting it might change our behavior. Accepting that there's a spiritual component and that it is integrated into our lives might have an influence over the way that we see each other, might have an influence over the way we see the world or the way we act or behave. That might have an influence. Might have an influence. That there is value in accepting it as a part of our being, you know, mm -hmm. you know, that there is the existential and accepting it can cause us to see ourselves as significant and others as significant in the mm -hmm. world worth engaging with. Yeah. I'm thinking as much as a, you know, freely get in my orthodox box a little mm -hmm. bit earlier. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's a very, you know, specific spiritual, you know, religious tradition. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm also, you know, thinking about, you know, those individuals I know who, you know, they, you know, have a lot of reasons, you know, to, to reject, you know, everything, you know, spiritual, religious, and, you know, still thinking about what we're asking now, you know, mm -hmm. does it benefit you to accept that there is a spiritual realm? And, you know, I'm trying to think in, in other terms of, of how I can understand that. And I feel like, um, I don't know, what do, what do you think if, uh, would a more neutral way of understanding it be just, um, recognizing the forces that are bigger than ourselves, recognizing, you know, the, the meta narratives that are, that are bigger than ourselves. Yeah. Um, it kind of depends on how you're oriented in the world. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 this is, this is a much, much broader discussion to say, well, what if, what if we, what if we entertained like uh, a, a perspective model that was strictly, stri strictly non-spiritual mm -hmm. and it's like, well, it's hard to rationalize a lot. I mean, that, that gets, yeah. that gets complicated really quickly. I feel like um, <laughs> there's, because there's always, uh, what's the, the Isaac mm -hmm. Asimov term, the ghost in the machine. Mm -hmm. Like there's always going to be like those little pockets of things that mm -hmm. don't completely respond to logic or rationale. Right. Um, or com you know, the things that are like just outside of science that are still, well, you can still sometimes approach them tentatively. Like, you know, we don't actually have a good theory as to why a person experiences consciousness. Uh, we don't have any neurological basis for, why your brain pairs sounds and sights and sensations and tactile. We, we don't, we don't understand that. We call it the binding problem. Um, I'm not saying that's proof of spirituality, but I'm saying that um, spirituality isn't disproven by cognitive psychology mm -hmm. on any stretch of the imagination either. Um, there's lots and lots and lots of gaps where you can entertain that this is a problem that can't be explained. It's the mystical is the mystical evidence of the soul. No, it's not evidence that it, I mean, it's just, it's just evidence that there's a lot we don't know. Mm -hmm. I think the evidence that we're spiritual is, you know, I'm not the right person to make this argument, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, it's probably in the fact that we act spiritual, engage in spiritual activity and we're better for it. <laughs> you know what I mean? That we, our lives are enhanced through it. <laughs> At the very least, uh, it might be fair to say that as beautiful and essential and wonderful as, as science is mm -hmm. and as empirical sciences are, they, it has its limits. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, you know, science answers a lot, but not quite everything. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely useful in a lot of cases, but it's not always the, just the right tool that we need. Right. So, right. So being able to acknowledge 
and you know being able just to acknowledge the limits of the tools that you're working with in this case you know a very science uh empirical based you right. know, perspective you know recognizing that it has its limits i think allows you to work with it more effectively and you mm-hmm. know focus it more on what it can focus on and when you need to go beyond that realm either refer out because that's always appropriate mm-hmm. or you know just you know pick up a different tool right Speaking of tools, as we're talking about some of these concepts, what are some specific implications for how we interact with clients? That's a really good. Um, that's a really good question. Practical, um, and I'm need some help on this one. But but first of all, accepting the existential and accepting that we are a spiritual being that's engaging with another spiritual being that desires purpose and meaning. I would say that purpose and meaning is an orienting reflex, and that is not historically understood as an orienting reflex. But to say that when I find something that gives me meaning and purpose outside of, say, basic life necessities, um, that I feel more grounded, I feel like I'm in the real world, I'm present, and I'm not in my head. Um, and for me, that's that's the definition of an orienting reflex out of the textbook. It's not actually recognized. So orienting reflexes bring you to reality. So I'm saying that my spirituality is grounding me in the real world, which in some way I find it to be evidence that my spirituality is not fake. (laughs) Um, But it being grounded in the real world allows me to engage with the problems of the real world, allows me to correct my life, Mm. allows me to help others contend with their own. When you can, when you yourself have, you know, mastered your, your base instincts, your animal desires, your primitive needs, and can then begin to contemplate some of the more complex interpersonal um, right. more transcendental matters that you know that in a sense like the more you move away specifically from the needs of the body the more you can engage with people in a different way a deeper more meaningful way and be more well in the same in way the that we do whenever we're more oriented towards the present yes so i mean a lot of people will orient ourselves towards the present because of fear or because of you know uh, um you know, well, fear is a common one, you know, there's a lot of things, even just dropping a book on the ground will startle you and will bring you to the present. I'm merely advocating that, um, that many people express that having a strong existential purpose and meaning through their spirituality, uh, they find is orienting to the present. It brings them here. Mm-hmm. They're not up in their head. They're not worrying about tomorrow. They're not worrying about the past. They're not thinking about their trauma. They're not stuck on their addictions. They're, mm-hmm. they're in the room. The more present you right can here, be, right now. the more resilience you can develop toward it, the more meaning you can make out of something. Well, the, like the more you're going to deal with what's here and now, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Which is a huge component in how, you know, we can understand what recovery is, especially in, in an right. addictions concept. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, no. This is a, yeah, there's there's some fascinating research on, on spirituality and addictions. I mean, right. that's where it shines. Yeah. My goodness. But to your point, you know, well, uh, a truism in, in addiction in the addictions world is is saying, you know, recovery is, you know, embracing reality as it is at all costs. Right. And, uh, and yet spirituality is a strong theme in addictions. Right. Because in, in order to be fully present in your reality, you have to re- reconcile with suffering on some level and figure out some right. way not to have to escape it or, or change it, but, yep. but to work with what is. And many people find uh, answers, resilience, strengths for that in some sort of spiritual practice, or at least even in So you're saying that uh, orienting of, yourself towards the spiritual <laughs> helps you contend with pain and suffering in the world. It can. Yeah, if yeah I would it, agree. Yeah. Well, and I think it does that partially by orienting us to reality. And again, that's a matter of opinion. A lot of people would disagree with me. It's not historically recognized as an, orient, as an orienting reflex. Um, but I really do believe that um, that we can contend more with the suffering of the world. 
um, that there's there's some helpful perspectives. You know, life is really, really, really hard. This is true. You know, the older you are, the more likely you are to figure out that that's true. Um, but you're tougher than you think you are. You're really, really tough. Um, you know, I think having an existential perspective can can make that bearable um, and can make us roll up our sleeves and work with the world. I really do. I, I concur. So one practical implication is um, a robust understanding of spirituality allows you to accept it and accept the existential yeah, things. Yeah, th- there's and- also a lot more. There's something like a reset effect in our brain too. Have you ever noticed there's a, there's a study I read where uh, 80% of subjects in a drug and alcohol study who had had a spiritual conversion were able to remain sober? And it's I, like... I've looked at some of these studies. I've worked, I've worked, I've worked in, in rehab programs before. And, and I've seen like, I've seen programs put five years worth of work into somebody or a group of people and see only 5% of them stay sober. And that, they thought that was amazing. You know what I mean? <laughs> like addictions research can be kind of bleak sometimes. But when you look at the, the impact of spiritual conversion, you know, sometimes there's astounding results. And, and so much so that the researchers like medicine and doctors, they're moving towards like psilocybin, trying to figure out what's going on in the brain during a spiritual conversion and how can we step in and intervene at that level. So they're looking at certain drugs that stimulate theta in the brain, you know, and, and I, of course I do biofeedback and neurofeedback and I do some of that stuff with biofeedback as well. And, and we're intervening on the level of like somewhere in between you know, we're trying to find some step in there of that spiritual conversion. We're trying to figure out how to engage yeah. with it. So there's something more going on that we don't really understand. There is. Uh, and it's interesting you talk about spiritual conversion. So, uh, so again, coming, coming from my perspective, mm-hmm. having, having witnessed, you know, quite a few, you know, yeah. spiritual conversions in multiple contexts that didn't last. That did not it last. It doesn't always last. No. Uh, but I would say, uh, again, going back mm-hmm. to where we had started, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, spirit, soul, and body, mind, yeah. brain, relationships. Um, a spiritual conversion on its own is not sufficient. It needs to be no. accompanied by a spiritual practice. Right. Which well, takes in this place study in the where body. it was 80%, they were all in a rigorous treatment program uh-huh. already. So that's so where the, we could talk but about. But it was, it was the ones that had the spiritual conversion that had the 80% likelihood of staying. So you were, they were right. doing a multivariate analysis. Oh, and they were but I'd be interested them. in looking at uh, where where spiritual conversion, spiritual like yeah. some heightened spiritual experience, is then followed by uh, by, by ritual, all the subsequent by routine, rituals, by, yeah. by community. Yeah, it, it really needed need to, to be said. You're absolutely right. It really needed to be said that there's a lot of ingredients. That was just one one of the ingredients that made it outstandingly uh, better, but it wasn't the only important ingredient. <laughs> For sure. So, so then speaking to providers and students who are working with people who may want to consider, Hey, here's these concepts. Maybe I'm open to thinking about them. Uh, what use are they to me in, in my practice? So it sounds right. like when, so it sounds like these are, are maybe things to think about in those cases where the, the problems, you know, clients are bringing in and bringing in problems that don't have easy answers right. that also don't have specifically logical, rational answers either. And where there's a high component of just ongoing, unchangeable suffering going on. Mm-hmm. Um, sounds like, you know, being able to connect to like the deeper, broader mysteries of the universe, mm-hmm. a broader purpose, you know, uh, some yeah. community where you can practice ritual, um, like those right. might be beneficial. And for some reason, engaging in that deeper meaning tends to help you solve problems in the real world. People who are in great pain and suffering who aren't going to be able to get out of that still find a way to make it bearable and they find a way to, 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 to structure their world in a way where they have purpose and meaning and can move forward in the real world and can be more present. Um, which is unusual. Like that, that in of itself should not be underestimated. Like 
the fact that engaging with something spiritually can make you more present in your real life mm-hmm. is something that logically shouldn't follow, but it does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is interesting. And so at some point we'll have to talk more about, again, I mean, how we interact with suffering and, uh, and there's, there's some belief and paradigm and, you know, cultural value here too. Like, you know, if we as a, as individuals and as a culture believe suffering is this bad thing to be escaped from as soon as possible, that's going to lead to behaviors that help us escape suffering as quickly and as often and as possible. And those don't orient you to the present and they don't help you they contend well with your life. They're they, lead to, they lead to poor outcomes, and not good outcomes. Very much so. That's why spirituality is interesting. It's an interesting variable. It doesn't follow the normal escapism uh, route. It right. seems to have more of a productive orienting effect. Right. In becoming more present and uh, in becoming more present, developing resilience, the, the situations around us don't change but the individual changes, the individual transforms, becomes stronger. And we could say that's, that's the recovery process or that's the, the recovery right. gold dust. Right. Yeah. 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 And we're still trying to figure out that, 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 that the way, the way that people reinvent themselves are trying to figure out how to use that, you know, scientifically as best we can. Um, and it's so exciting. I mean, there's going to be some cool stuff. I think we did a podcast on this a little while ago about reset therapies. I think it was what last week or two weeks ago. I think so. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to go back, you know, a week and listen to last week's, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so for the, uh, provider who's interested in learning more about this or the, or what am I trying to ask? <laughs> Are there more resources? Yeah. Right. Uh, so for the, the practitioner or the student who's interested in learning more about some of these things, where would you direct them for reading another? Oh man. Uh, it's tough. There, there are a few names out there. Um, but I'm only just now like integrating them into like my bookshelf and starting to preview them. So I don't have anything that I'm sure I like yet, but I, I do have like three or four names. Um, and I don't know what they are. <laughs> I don't recall them specifically right now. Um, I mean, I know that uh, the Multnomah program has a spiritual integrations class and spiritual integrations is a consistent part of their program. And so there, there's room for, for more exploration there. I think that if you're an alumni, you, you get to audit classes periodically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to throw out yeah, um, do. The, the, the Richard Rohr name, I think, if I'm, I've actually only read one book by him, but, but from what I understand of, of his approach, it's very much looking for, looking for the spiritual and all things. I think he, he originates in a, in a Catholic background, but I think he, yeah, yeah. he, um, works to kind of tra- transcend, transcend that tradition and, you know, speak more universally in terms of, right. you know, how do people develop good spiritual practices and, um, and what, what does that look like in a, both a religious and non-religious setting? So, I mean, He's probably a good thinker to consider. In right. Matters. Yeah. Um, I might, we might give you a few names for posting at the bottom of the podcast. Okay. Um, because I know I can come up with about three good names. Okay. I know if you're uh, specifically a Christian and that's how you practice your spirituality. Um, I know Henry Nowen in the name of Jesus is a book that I threw against a wall twice, uh, but loved it my third time running through it. Uh, <laughs> it just took me a while to accept some of those concepts. Um, not, not as complicated as, as we're going by maybe getting at the heart of, of how we, how we engage with our own spirituality. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll include some resources in the liner notes and, um, do you have any last thoughts or, uh, quick details we, we might've missed in presenting? This oh, I have, I have tons, but they're just rabbit trails <laughs> go forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And we could talk about a lot of different things like for, for people who are specifically Christians, I could comment for a long period of time about the role of the Holy Spirit 
or if we wanted to, we could talk about how the hemispheres of your brain, the left and right hemisphere are very, very, very divided, you know, uh, connected um, only by, you know, your corpus callosum, which is a very small set of neural, very long neurological tissue um, that, that the ideas in your brain that are highly conflicting, like justice and truth don't exactly touch <laughs> love and forgiveness very well. They're very, very poorly functionally connected. And, you know, cognitive psychology can teach us a lot about some of the troubles that we have, you know, engaging in our own spiritual life, like with concepts like forgiveness or for Christians, you know, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, patience, you know, kindness, self-control. Those can be explained neurologically. Um, and so there is some crossover between what things, what, what people hold spiritually and what the brain says about those things. And we can understand why they're so difficult and why they're not very well integrated with each other. Um, like, as I said, you know, holding a full understanding of justice and the need for justice while holding a full and true understanding of forgiveness and and I would propose that that we have the capacity to think very clearly and definitely on one of those at a time. Um, but we're very, very, very bad at even having a very compromised version of both of them at the same time. And we, we can sense that because we tend to just play one role or the other typically. And I think a therapist's job, or I would say in my case, a Christian's job, I'm speaking about myself now, but especially in a therapist's job too, is to try to bring both to the table you're sitting down with somebody with as much love as you can bring, but as much truth as you can bring. And that's not easy. That's neurologically difficult. It is very neurologically difficult. <laughs> and I'm thinking about the hemispheres too. I mean, you're talking about terms like, you know, justice, compassion, you know, truth and love. They're uh, very paradoxical. Very, very much so. Or sim- similarly, you know, just rigidity and chaos. And ideally we come together right. somewhere in this, you know, fluid, flexible, you know, middle. Right. Um, it, again, it's it's neurologically difficult and it yes. requires a complexity of thought that not well, everyone... You can grasp them through metacognition, but you can't really feel them. Right. It's not, it's <laughs> not, not at the same time. <laughs> it's not instinctive for us to think that way. We can learn and many people do. And I think, yeah, that's part of what our but job I, is I as think therapists. That's, yeah, as therapists, our call is specifically to try and live both out yeah. with a person, yeah, both sides. So we, we ourselves become the integration. Of- we're, we're, we're in a paradoxical way. I mean, cause again, they're very, very poorly connected, very, very poor functional connectivity. Um, but either we practice it through metacognition or we genuinely work on bridging the gap of the paradox um, the best we can uh, with the time that we have here on earth. Um, and that's, that's our best self, I think is, is being able to keep, you know, some of those concepts, um, as activated as we can, but as balanced as we can, rather than just dipping off to one side, we could talk for hours and hours on that dynamic. We could, you know, but, you can see communities will often dip one side or the other. And, and, you know, it's like you look at a church or a religious institution or a political party, love or truth. They just, they, they choose one. They don't tend to balance them. Mm-hmm. They just choose one, and then and then they sacrifice truth on the altar of love, or the other one sacrifices love on the altar of truth. That does happen. It does. So, and, <laughs> and you can see where that happens again. I mean, in mm-hmm. in you know, non-religious context too, thinking yeah. you know different you know political parties and yeah. And oh, so too. politics is a brutal one too. I feel like yeah. it's true. Let's not but, get into but, that. But you can um, even but, go with therapists. Do therapists fall on one? Do, do they have a tendency to fall on one side of the spectrum or the other? Probably. I think they do. 
So again, here's a clarion call for us therapists mm-hmm. to again be more mindful of ourselves. You know, you be know, dialectical. Be in dialectical your, in your own brain. Be dialectical <laughs> in, in all things, and in all things, uh, live in the tension. Yes, and um, you know, let things be complex. So, um, we will, I think, um, wrap the discussion there. Uh, we would love to continue the conversation. So, if you are listening and you are either within our tradition or not in our tradition or in a different religious tradition and would like to comment, critique, oh, yeah. crit- criticize, uh, disagree, um, and we're okay with being wrong, by the way, for sure. And again, I mean, if you leave us, you know, cool comments, we might have you back on the podcast because totally. we need those other perspectives, yes, to complicate things. Um, so I just learned we're also on Spotify now, Spotify, oh, Google Play. Oh, wow. So we're on Spotify and we're on Google music. Yes. Wow. So check us out there. Check us out on SoundCloud and iTunes. Uh, please do help us out by leaving rates and reviews. That helps us out a lot. We'll have you back yes. in another week or two. Thank you. We love your feedback. So let's keep the conversation going. Follow Smart Council on Facebook at at Smart Council Podcast, on Twitter at at Smart Council 601. And you can email your questions to smartcouncilpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Nate Botsford. Our logo design is by Thomas Moore. This podcast was edited and produced by breakfastpuppies.com.